Politico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Katrine Bruner. In this edition of Eco Report, environmental correspondent Zero Rose talks with Jeff Meese, CEO of One World Enterprises, about the measures taken to make a set of local food service companies more environmentally responsible. And now for your environmental reports. Electrocution isn't the main thing killing birds along power lines, according to the New York Times. A survey of power lines in four western states found bullet fragments and shotgun pellets in most of the dead birds that were collected. Birds get electrocuted on power lines, but people shooting at birds perched on power poles may be even more of a problem. In a survey of five sites in the western United States, two-thirds of birds found dead beneath power lines had been shot. Avians found death dead along power lines are often assumed to have died from electrocution, especially if their bodies show burns or singeing, said Eve Thomason, a wildlife biologist at Boise State University in Idaho. But the animal may have been injured or killed before getting zapped. In the new study published in the journal Science, Ms. Thomason and her colleagues walked along 122 miles of power lines in Idaho, Oregon, Utah, and Wyoming, collecting 410 bird carcasses. Back in the lab, the researchers x-rayed the birds, looking for evidence of gunshot wounds or other trauma. Phoenix is enduring its hottest month on record, but mitigations could make the city's heat waves less unbearable. Simple solutions like more trees, reflective pavements, smaller parking lots, and lighter roofs could make the Valley of the Sun less prone to overheating in the future. The consequences are now making headlines around the world, with Phoenix reaching over 20 days straight of temperatures reaching 110 degrees Fahrenheit or higher, a new record. The city also recorded its highest low temperature ever last week, a not-so-comfortable 97 degrees, and will become the city's hottest month ever. The news is full of language saying hottest month ever. It's true if the reference is to recorded temperatures, which date back to 1880. But before there were Homo sapiens, there were millions of years on Earth with temperatures 10 to 20 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than today. The atmospheric carbon dioxide was several times higher than today, all coming from volcanic eruptions. During most of Earth's existence, there was no ice at all on Earth. One of the easiest ways to mitigate heat is to provide more shade in areas that need it, often by planting more trees. That idea is beginning to take root throughout the Phoenix metro area. Thus far, the golf courses are still using copious amounts of water, and 80% of the water from the Colorado River goes to agriculture. Leafy greens, cabbage, dates, melons, lemons, oranges, apples, potatoes, and tomatoes are just some foods harvested from Arizona's nourishing soil. 
The state also boasts a growing nut and date crop industry. High-quality cotton, which requires a lot of water, is also a major crop. I didn't know that. What is difficult to understand is the construction of a microchip plant that will employ about 30,000 people. That would add at least 200,000 people to the population. Arizona's people are going to be exposed to even higher temperatures in the future. Temperatures over 120 degrees Fahrenheit are life-threatening. The earliest evidence for human habitation in what is now the city of Paris dates from about 7600 BCE. By the end of the 3rd century BCE, a settlement had been built on the island, Ile de la Cité. It was inhabited by a Jalic tribe known as the Parisi. The Seine River was full of salmon and sturgeon. The river began to decline seriously 500 years ago because butcher shops and tanneries on the island dumped their waste into the water. Still, Paris is referred to as the city of light and the city of love. And until 1923, it was also a city of swimming. That year, swimming was banned in the Seine due to the excess sewage being drained into the river following heavy rainfall, rendering the iconic river unsafe. An exception to the band was the swimming competition, Traversée de Paris à la Nage, which continued into the 1940s according to Paris Unlocked. Paris is gearing up for the Summer Olympic Games next year and is in the final phase of a decade-long $1.6 billion sorry, project to restore the Seine and make it swimmable once again, reported BBC News and France 24. EcoWatch reports that olive harvests are expected to face a second challenging year in a row as heat waves threaten crops across Europe. This year's heat waves arrived a month earlier than the first heat waves of last year's hot dry season, according to Earth.org. The first heat wave arrived in late April, following a warmer and drier than usual March. The winter was also unusually warm. During, during the first heat wave of 2023, the trees were just beginning to flower, putting them in a vulnerable position. Spain, the largest olive oil producer in Europe, has had its annual supply decline by half because of the heat and drought. Last year, heat waves caused the country's olive oil production to decline from 1.48 million metric tons in 2021 to 2022 to just 660,000 metric tons from 2022 to 2023. Experts are predicting olive oil supply to reach 850,000 metric tons this year, still far below average, but continuing heat waves could impact the harvest. In Spain, we already know it is going to be another bad year, but no one knows what's currently happening. The record temperatures are not going to help the situation, according to Walter Zanre, the chief executive of the largest olive oil producer globally. Quote, I can't share how much anxiety this is causing us. Last year, Spain came into crop with a bit of carryover from the year before, which negated the shortfall somewhat. This year, the barrels are dry. Even if Spain produces the predicted 850 tons, the price situation is worse, end quote. Spain isn't alone. Other major olive oil producing countries, such as Italy and Portugal, have experienced smaller yields because of the harsh conditions. Since June 2022, olive oil prices have surged in response to the poor olive harvest as the crop has been affected by the extreme heat. Olive oil prices have hit over $6,000 per metric ton, the highest price this product has been since 1997, weather.com reported. 
As The Guardian reported, consumers may expect to see shortages of olive oil in the fall, as last year's supply is expected to run out in September, and the new supply for 2023 isn't expected to be ready until November. Many crops are facing shortages amid the climate crisis. The current heat waves in Europe are also threatening vineyards, even putting types of grapes that have long been known to survive in extreme conditions at risk. Maturing tomatoes in Italy are at risk from blistering in the extreme temperatures, and these crops were already impacted by severe floods earlier this year. And now we turn to Zero Rose and his conversation with Jeff Mees on One World Enterprises, one on ways that he has worked to prevent pollution, reduce waste, and implement green practices as standard policy among a family of local food businesses. The full interview will appear online as an eco-report extra at WFHB.org. So we have with us today Jeff Mees, founder and CEO of One World Enterprises, and he's going to let us know about some of his business's uh, green practices that they've been doing for quite some time and are always developing. Uh, what are some of the, uh, I know you've got a few other entities uh, that uh, businesses that are affiliated with you guys. You want to tell our listeners? Yeah, sure. What, so what is One World Enterprises? We are Pizza X uh, is our oldest business. Um, Hive is is uh, uh, the newest one. Uh, one World Catering and One World at Woolery are kind of the same business. Where uh, that's a catering business uh, at um, at the old Woolery Mill, the historic Woolery Mill, and um, uh, that business, the mill, the Woolery Mill business is about five years old. But we had started the catering business about about thirteen years ago, and uh, then we also run a kitchen a shared kitchen business called uh one world kitchen share uh that's not officially a public benefit corp but we kind of run it that way uh basically uh providing space uh in infrastructure for startup food startup small startup food operations and we're only we're all in bloomington only in bloomington and i imagine that pizza x is going to be the main Thing that people are familiar with and i uh, saw where you um, um source your pizza boxes a little uh, differently um how, how what's the green aspect of uh the pizza box uh you know early on and this goes way back when we started pizza x in 1982 and uh i remember our first boxes were were white what's called cardboard white on white and because uh, that Domino's was Domino's Pizza was our big competitor, and it was just easier to source that. But as we went along, got I, I really like Pizza Hut boxes, and I saw a few small companies using these boards that were what they weren't bleached white or painted white. They were they were what's called craft in the industry, just a natural cardboard, like you'd imagine a cardboard box, normal cardboard box. And I got that and talking to my box supplier about that. Yeah, we think we could get those. Uh, and and uh, just I read stuff even back then. This was way pre-internet that, you know, that uh, uh, it was better, better environmentally to not have this cardboard be bleached. Or, uh, uh, and so we started. And I like to I just like the look of it, too. Um, uh, so, yeah, so we we went to craft board, you know, way back when. But our supplier, our, our vendor, uh, our distributor in Indianapolis is very 
uh, with that's a family owned business and a real conscious guy. And and he's he uh, 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 they source their boxes from a large uh, a large manufacturer, but um, but all their cardboard that they uh, uh, all the cardboard that he buys has a sustainable forestry initiative certification on it. Uh, now that said, uh, how how good is that? I actually went yesterday and looked up the sustainable forestry initiative and seems pretty solid, although it's an industry group. Uh, and it is, there is some, you know, they've had some challenges that they're not doing everything right, as probably just about every environmental organization does. Uh, and I actually, I, 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 uh, I questioned, well, I'm, I'm going to put this out there. Do I believe in the, do I believe in it? Uh, um, so I, so I went and looked and there, there wasn't a whole lot of scuttlebutt, um, uh, so decided it seemed, I think it's always, you know, I, I really, uh, I try not to let the, um, perfect be the enemy of the good kind of thing. I feel like if people are, if people are seeking to be environmental and preaching that message, that's at least a, a good step in the right direction. Can I, do I know how pure they are or what their intent is? I don't, I don't know much about the detail. I guess just like anything else, you gotta, I, uh, you gotta, hopefully you can have some trust of the people that you know more than you and also recognize they're part of an industry and trying to look good. Uh, 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 but at least they're stating this, we stand for this and then people can challenge them on it. Um, Are there and they, they do get challenged and I think that's good. So you can say, you know, we believe in this and then somebody's like, hey, you say you believe in this, but then why are you doing this? You know, and I and I still think that's better than just people hiding under a rock or pretending uh, and just like, I don't care, you know. All right. Uh, yeah, I think at Pete's Axe, our napkins, our craft as well, and our stick bags, we use a lot of those. Those are those are also all, yeah, unble unbleached paper. Uh, yeah. And so uh, are there uh, other measures that you take? or have implemented over the years? Oh, just related. Well, a lot of things. I think, you know, when I go back, I've, uh, I've long, I've, I, I've considered myself environment, an environmentalist all my life, you know, just trying to be aware, aware of my waste stream personally, uh, aware of the energy that I use. Uh, uh, so, it's always just, you know, it's always been a thing, you know, back it, one of the challenges in the environmental movement is like it, there's a lot of kind of flavor, it's flavor of the month, flavor of the year that you remember when, you know, you go back 25 years and it's like, uh, we use soy ink, you know, our, there's, there's this much recycled content in our data in, in, where we're, you know, we're recycling battery, you know, don't throw your batteries in the landfill. And where is that now? Uh, uh, you know, so, so uh, we've, we've done a lot of these things for, I was involved, I went to the Leadership Bloomington course. Oh, gosh, when was it? Eight, in the early 90s, probably. Uh, and I was part of, a, you do a project in that group. And our project was uh, around a household uh, household waste, household and household hazardous waste 
uh, uh, basically getting people to get, you know, let's be careful of that stuff that's just, you know, shouldn't go to the landfill. Uh, and out of that came, uh, 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 it was the, the Monroe County Solid Waste District ended up creating stuff that you could bring uh, hazardous waste paints and this kind of thing, and batteries were a thing. So, uh, so we started actually collecting. I thought, oh, what if Pizza X drivers picked up dead batteries from people's house? Because at that point, here was the biggest challenge. Nobody knew. You'd ask anybody, hey, what do you do with your old batteries? Throw them in the trash. What else would you do with them? Oh, they shouldn't, you know, people were saying they shouldn't go in the trash. I'm like, yeah, let's have Pizza X drivers just pick them up. And that, that I mean, it's backhauling, you know, which is, oh, you can't, there's not a very much more environmental thing you can do besides backhauling, like fill up, fill up your truck on the return trip. So we did that. And largely it was kind of to make, you know, just people more conscious because, Nobody knew you shouldn't throw batteries in the landfill. Okay, so now fast forward 25 years is always a pain in the ass for my managers. You know, they didn't, they're like, well, we got this bucket of batteries and drivers, you know, people asking to bring that. So just like, hey, this is something good that we're doing. Just, just do it. Uh, but now, but then we got to the point where the solid waste district is charging us big money to bring these batteries in we're like you know you'll take them from people we're just collecting them from people so i mean don't we want to keep them out of landfill uh, but <laughs> the whole thing's that now you know they they don't want them anymore and it says so, so, okay so i there there you know better than me there there tends to be this sort of in the environmental thing that you know will flash over here flash over there but it goes over here oh no that's not over here but for me, it's really always been like, if if we're watching our waste stream, like I know, for example, <laughs> I teach an orientation class for new staff. Uh, uh, I've done it for six years. Now we started an orientation program, taught hundreds of hundreds and hundreds of staff. I always ask new staff, I say, uh, you know, we're really seek to be a, a, a company that pays attention to its waste stream. I said, do you know where uh, you, uh, do you know where the stuff goes at your house that you throw in the trash? Do you know where that final resting place is? Nobody, not a single person ever knows that there, occasionally somebody says, isn't there a place on the south side of town it gets hauled to? And say, yeah, no, that's a, that's a transfer station where instead trash gets, I said, every single thing you put in the trash gets driven in a truck to Terre Haute, its final resting place. That's where it goes. With the waste stream thing is we bought a farm 14 years ago uh, out on not far, not far from town. And we immediately started composting all our stuff. This was a, this was something I've always had wanted to do. Uh, so we did it internally. We'd like all, all our stuff that was, uh, Pete Sachs has almost no food waste, but catering has a lot of food waste. The restaurants, our commissary where we prep stuff, a lot of a lot of just vegetable trimmings and stuff. So we started taking that out. Oh, my staff hate that. You know, it's like hauling this garbage out of the farm. And my guy who lived on the farm, he would we would uh, uh, we would basically just put it trench it uh, trench it with sticks and leaf matter and stuff and cover it back up. Not that we're making compost exactly to sell. We're just putting it back in the soil. 
And, and that was a huge part of our, that's a huge part of our solid waste by because of course, you know, it's mostly water, which we'd otherwise be paying trucks to haul to Terre Haute. So we've been doing that for 14 years and now I've got actually got, well, we're not doing it anymore. Now we have farmers that pick it up and they, they take it and do, do what they do with it, uh, compost it or, uh, uh, yeah, compost it. And um, uh, so that, so that's, so we love that. So I'd say, I'd say at, at one world, we probably, I mean, this is just a guess. I've never studied it. Uh, we don't have, you know, we're a for-profit business, so we don't have interns running around that we can pay to measure things. And, uh, but I, I guess that we've gotten rid of 80% of our waste stream in the last 30 years between the recycling that we do and composting and all that. And, uh, and we're proud of that. And I try to get our staff to take pride in that, you know, like this is, yeah, I realize it's a little pain in the butt. You know, you got to think about the stuff that's, that's getting thrown away, but you can take pride in the fact that most this is in nature. I'm Kaylin Huffman Brower. This segment of in nature is about the endangered species the copperbelly water snake. The copperbelly water snake is a non-venomous snake that grows two to four feet in length. It has a solid dark, usually black back with a bright orange-red belly. They need a patchwork of shallow wetlands or floodplain wetlands surrounded by forest uplands. They move from one wetland to another. Frogs and tadpoles are their main prey. The population of the copperbelly water snake is listed as threatened under the Endangered Species Act. Threatened means likely to become endangered in the foreseeable future. Identifying, protecting, and restoring endangered and threatened species is a primary objective of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Wetlands used by the copperbelly water snake have been altered by people for agriculture, road, housing, and other developments. Because the copperbelly water snake needs many wetlands interspersed among uplands over a large area, it's especially vulnerable to habitat fragmentation. They're also collected for the pet trade. It is, however, illegal to collect the copperbelly water snake. They're also vulnerable as they move from one site to another to predators and across roads, mowed areas, and farmlands. You've been listening to In Nature. For Eco Report, I am Juliana Daly. And I am Katrine Bruner. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. 
Happening right now, the Artists for Environmental Restoration are having an opening reception of their visual arts exhibition, CSEA Change, a collective exhibition about our natural world at Backspace Gallery on 6th Street from 5 to 8 p.m. today. Drop by the Payne Town State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake to do some cloud watching on Saturday, September the 2nd from 6 to 7.30 p.m. Meet at the campground playground to cloud gaze and learn what different types of clouds can tell us about weather changes. A National Wildlife Day talk and walk will take place at Strink Spring Mill State Park on Monday, September 4th from 11 to 11.45 a.m. Meet the naturalist at the Lakeview Activity Center for a brief presentation and then take a short hike near the lake shoreline to look for wildlife. A Trees from Seed presentation by Ray Major is scheduled for Brown County State Park on Thursday, September the 7th from 2 to 3 p.m. Meet at the Friends Shelter House to join Ray, the man behind the Trees from Seeds social media movement for an informative session on growing trees. Learn about owls, nighttime hunters at the Paintown Recreation Area at Monroe Lake on Saturday, September 9th from 2 to 3.30 p.m. Meet at the Activity Center patio to discover how owls are uniquely adapted to being nocturnal hunters and find out which owls call Indiana home. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Hawley. Today's news feature was produced by Zero Rose and edited by Noel Herhusky Schneider. Juliana Daly assembled the script, which was edited by Zero Rose. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Cade Young and Noel Hershey Schneider produced today's show. Brandon Blewett is our engineer. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Katrine Bruner. And this is Eco Report.
You've been listening to The Eco Report. A volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB. In Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.